This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 234, and we are recording on June 2nd. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And before we get started, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is an extraordinarily difficult time for the Black community. Black Lives Matter, and we are sending support and encouragement. We're also putting together an episode for next week around anti-racist literature for those who need some more education and literature to refer to. Yeah, and I just want to hang a lantern on the fact that even if you are brown, you are not black <laughs> for most of us. And there are a lot of communities, I'm speaking from mine specifically, that are marginalized in their own ways, but that have a lot of anti-blackness to work through. Asian communities, Filipino communities can be very anti-black. It comes out in the way that we talk about our own skin color and the way that we have all internalized colonialism and the anti-black messages that that, you know, puts inside of us all. So doing anti-racist work is not just for white people. So when we put out that episode next week, I really encourage everyone who is not black or indigenous to have a listen. So yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's our story. <laughs> and that's our story. And now we're going to talk about other mm-hmm. things, which feels really weird, but that's how the show yeah. works. So here we go. Uh, so speaking of how the show works, you send in your questions about what you should read next, uh, what your book club might want to read, what you should get for a friend or a relative, et cetera, et cetera. And we do our best to find a good option for you. If you want to send in a question, you can do that either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop the question in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for each episode. If you have a time-sensitive question you're hoping to hear back by a specific date, please put time-sensitive, all caps, mm-hmm. subject line of the email, or first line of the form, and we'll do our best. If we are not going to get to it on air, though, we might shoot you an email. So keep an eye out for those. All right, some feedback from listeners for askers. Eric sends a recommendation to A Lover of Whimsy for 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrow, a similar sense of adventure along with elegant language like some of the other titles you mentioned. And Wendy says, for Michelle, who's looking for queer fantasy books, uh, I recommend Broken Wings by L.J. Baker, Princess of Dorsa by Eliza Andrews, When Women Were Warriors by Catherine Wilson, and Everything Anna Burke Has Written, (laughs) and All But Broken Wings are available on audio. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. I'm going to read our first question, and then we'll do a sponsor, and then we will dive into our recommendations. Uh, Dee says, since it's almost June, the gay month, today I want to ask for some LGBT recs. In the past, I've read The Price of Salt, My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, Brown, White, Black, The Song of Achilles, and probably others I can't remember. I already have Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe, Red, White, and Royal Blue, Juliet Takes a Breath, Fresh Water, and Un kindness of ghosts and it's a whole spiel on my tbr 
It would be great if you could recommend one fiction and one nonfiction, particularly looking for something by a female or non-binary author, and bonus points if they're not from the U.S. or U.K., even Europe, as I'm trying to read about experiences other than my own. Happy Pride Month, y'all. Okay, so let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done at she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. All right, Amanda, I think you took the nonfiction, yeah? I did. And I also want to mention that this listener sent us as like payment oh, yeah. a picture of a puppy um, from her uh, that her coworker has, and it was real cute. So thank you very much for that. We do not require payment of any kind <laughs> to answer no. your questions. However, if you feel <laughs> if the spirit, if the Holy Spirit leads you to send send us puppy pictures, we will take them. A hundred percent. Okay, so I I ignored a little bit of this question. I went with I Don't Want to Die Poor by Michael Arsenault, which is a new release. He's not non-binary, and he is from the U.S., but I picked it because this is an essay collection that came out in the beginning of April, like right as COVID was happening. And I'm trying really hard to spotlight new releases from authors uh, that were putting out books during this time because it's they can't tour. All the bookstores are closed. It's really difficult um, for them to promote their work and to, you know, got to earn out that advance. And he is a Black author, so I don't I feel like led to talk about that right now. So this 
is hilarious and very upsetting. I Don't Want to Die Poor is an essay collection about his student loan debt, which is another reason why you should go buy it because, you know, he needs that change. Just needs it. Just (laughs) needs it. So he graduated, Michael graduated with a lot of student loan debt. Like I think it was five or six figures that his mother had also co-signed some of of the debt for him. He went to, um, oh, I don't remember, was it how? I don't remember what college he went to. Anyway, and has a successful career. Like he's a pretty well-known writer and is doing well for a millennial, you know, in his 30s. But with all of that crushing student loan debt, he gets to enjoy almost none of it. And so there's a there's a lot of some of these essays are more political or about how, you know, like capitalism is broken and we're not doing enough to help people who are graduating with these crushing debt loads. All we do is blame them for it, despite the fact that like 18 year olds don't know what they're signing. You know, like we expect an 18 year old to have the financial savvy of, you know, like a a Wall Street banker, which is ridiculous. And so some of them are like very political about that kind of like structural stuff. Some of the essays are more about how carrying that kind of debt load, even when you are outwardly successful, can affect so many parts of your life, like whether or not you seek medical care because you can't afford it and whether or not you date because like if you get close to someone, you're going to eventually have to tell them that you have six figures of debt, you know, his relationship with his mom and how his loans have affected that because she co-signed for a lot of them and and other, you know, some other aspects of, of your life, like your own self-worth, how you feel about internalizing those those messages of shame for having made the decision to take on the debt in the first place, uh, how it like steals all of your good feelings about your success as they happen because like your brain is automatically like, well, that's not even going to put a dent in my debt, even if the the thing that you've done is like a really good achievement or, um, you know, a big deal otherwise. So I think that people will find a lot, especially if you're a U.S. Uh, reader, will find a lot of relatable things in this. And he's hilarious, like just the most ratchet, like just so good. So, so, so funny. And even though he's writing about very serious and emotional and structural issues. Just hashtag laugh cry is what you're going to do the whole time because that's what I did. So that is I Don't Want to Die Poor by Michael Arsenault. I have had my eye on that collection and now I definitely need to pick it up. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. So relatable. Uh, And then also, obviously, his experiences are different from my Mm -hmm. own. So I look forward to reading that. My pick is fiction. It is Disoriental by Negar Javadi, translated by Tina Cover. I have talked about this a handful of times before on the podcast. But listen, if you're looking for non-European queer novels that will, like, just blow your mind, this is the one. This is the one to read. It is so good. It won a bunch of prizes outside of the U.S., And it is about a young girl whose family flees Iran when she is 10. And they go to France to join her father. They are, you know, fleeing political persecution. And she is not just telling, the author is not just telling this this one story of Kimia fleeing Iran at 10 years old, which is already like a big story. But she goes back into Kimia's the history of her family. And so it's interesting. The narrative structure is not particularly straightforward. You go, you move around in time and space, both through the history of the family and then through uh, Kimia grown up in France and then to her childhood in Iran and then moving to France. And it's like, I have heard 
from some folks who have recommended it to that it took a little while for them to like get into the rhythm of how it was moving around. But I swear to you, it's so worth it. It is so I mean, it's heartbreaking in so many ways, but it's also really beautifully written. The translation is stunning. It just feels so seamless. The characters are amazing, and it just has this um this lovely storytelling feel to it when when you're going back into the history of the family. Like it feels like you know you're sitting around with your family, and one of your you know great aunts or great great whatevers is sitting there telling you this story that maybe she heard as a kid from her grandmother. Like it just has this incredible narrative feel to it. I love the marrying of that sort of oral family tradition with this very contemporary temporary story of a young queer woman who has been displaced. So I I think it's just so good. And I want everybody to read it. So I keep talking about it. (laughs) Again, that's Disoriental by Negar Javadi, translated by Tina Cover. All right. Our next question is from Nikki, who says, I'm a healthcare worker, and this pandemic has been challenging both personally and professionally. My colleagues and I have been working 24-7 to support our community through this difficult time. I'm proud to serve my patients, but I'm feeling increasingly isolated as the pandemic stretches on. I'm in a long-distance marriage, and due to travel restrictions in place for my organization, I'm not sure when I will be able to see my husband or family again. I always turn to books in times of crisis, and I'm having trouble concentrating on my usual genres. What I'm hoping for in my reading life is some light, fluffy romance with lots of banter, particularly with depictions of strong sibling relationships and or found families. Some comps would be the Bridgerton series or the Governess Game by Tessa Dare. I know this is a very specific request and would appreciate any and all recommendations. Okay. We appreciate you, Nikki. And I hope that this is over for you soon. Okay. I picked True Pretenses by Rose Lerner, which is the second book in the Lively St. Lemiston series. But as always, as we always say, you do not have to normally read uh, romance series in order. The same is very true for this one. I have only actually, I've only read the second one. So I don't know. I don't know if the if the first one, um, if the characters from the first one make an appearance in the in the second. Anyway. So you were asking for like strong sibling relationships and both the hero and the heroine in this novel have strong sibling relationships and the plot is kind of centered around those. So this is about, oh, I forgot to give you a trigger warning for anti-Semitism in this one. So this is about Ash. The hero's name is Ash and him and his brother, Rafe, are con men out of London. They have been together, orphaned together since they were very young. I think Ash was eight when his mother died. And they have been like conning the people of London since. They're very lovable. It's like con men with the heart of gold. And the heroine's name is Lydia. And so Ash, our Jewish con men hero, falls in love with Lydia, our Tory, stuck up, middle of nowhere village heroine. And it is amazing. So he decides that they, they um, Rafe has decided, his younger brother's decided that he doesn't want to be a con man anymore. He like no longer feels good about it. They've tried to focus only on taking money from like very Robin Hood style, like wealthy people who aren't going to miss it. But he wants to settle down and like live a more honest life. And so Ash convinces him, we'll do one more job. You can take the money. You can get like a, um, a what do you call it? A, um, an enlistment in, in the Navy, uh, whatever the British word is for that. It's not enlistment, but you know what I mean? A commission. Yes, you can buy a commission as an officer and go on about your merry way. And so this is who they focus on, Lydia. She is recently widowed, uh, not widowed, orphaned. Her father has just died. And her father was a very prominent Tory in the area. And her brother is supposed to take over the seat. And he doesn't want to. He's like, 
hella not interested, mostly just wants to garden and is just the most lovable. Their relationship is adorable. And so really, she's like the political brains behind the the whole operation. And her plan is to get married so she can access her money that she's inherited and use it to keep the seat running, to like keep the Tory interests running in in that area. And so she, you know, uh, Ash gets wind of this and decides he's going to marry her and like take her money um, or get her brother, his brother to marry her um, so he can take the money. But things go awry. Like it's everyone's trying to con everyone else. And it is further complicated by like feelings because it's romance. And that's always what further complicates uh, the situation. And, you know, it uh, eventually, like obviously comes up that he is Jewish and she is a Tory. And this is England in the 1800s. And like, that's a big problem. And her, I was like, mm, I don't know, like, do I want to really read about like, oh, anti-Semite realizing that Jewish people are people? I don't think I want to read that. But that's not what's happening here. Like, she is not a, a caricature of a Tory, if you if you know what I mean. Like, she's very much a person who was raised in this family to think a certain way. And as soon as she uses her brain, which she does because she's a very smart person, she like dismisses a lot of the nonsense that her other that other Tories in the neighborhood have, have uh, put into her brain. Anyway, also, it's an own voices book. And they are, I love them so much. I love them. I love them so much. And she is a very no-nonsense, like, independent, mild spoiler, but it's romance, so I don't think it is so much a spoiler. But when she finds out who he really is, she's like, why didn't you just freaking, why didn't you just tell me? Like, (laughs) you could have just, it's fine. He's like, is it? And then they have, like, a whole conversation. Anyway, it's just really good. It's really good. Very heartwarming. Very light, fluffy. Lots of sibling love. So that's True Pretenses by Rose Lerner. I've read her other, some of her other stuff. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that whole series, apparently, because uh, uh, as I said, I've only read the one, but it's based on like local political machinations. Like every book is about some local political thing in the UK. And it, uh, I just love that. Gotta love it. Yeah. I picked The Rogue Not Taken, which is the first in the Scandal and Scoundrel series. I know it's very out of character to recommend the first <laughs> book in a series, but here we are. It's by Sarah McLean, and I am recommending it because you wanted this strong sense of sibling relationships. And this whole series is about the sisters in the very scandalous Talbot family. And the reason they're scandalous is because they're not aristocrats. They are a merchant family who has like are just rolling in money. And so they have sort of bought their way into high society. But high society obviously is not like super thrilled about it. And they're like all over the gossip pages, et cetera, et cetera. And the youngest, Sophie, is at like a garden party with her family and she sees the like terrible husband of one of her older sisters and pushes him into a goldfish pond and in like a moment of rage and then is of course the subject of loads of scorn and scandal and she's like you know what I'm done. I'm done with London. I'm done with these people. I don't know why we're all trying so hard to fit in here. Like, they hate us. I hate them. Like, what are we even doing? I just want to go back to the country and never deal with high society again. So she stows on the back of a carriage that looks like it's going out of town because what else are you going to do when you're a young lady fleeing London? And of course, the carriage turns out to be owned by the local Local Rake, the Marquess of Eversley, who has a very specific reputation. And there are like reasons, capital mm-hmm. R reasons, around why that is. But he has been summoned home 
by his like you know father or whoever uh to like answer for himself and to you know get yelled at until he straightens up and flies (laughs) right or whatever and discovers that sophie has stowed away in his carriage and he's like you're trying to trick me into marrying you because why else would you stow away in my carriage and she's like i didn't know whose carriage this is i don't want to marry you i wouldn't marry you if you paid me i just want to get the hell out of london and of course you know things then happen. (laughs) But the sister bond in these books is the best. It's so great. And I love how full circle the whole series comes because the last book is about the dude she pushes into the fish pond. And it's just so satisfying. And the sisters are so great, like I just said. But did I tell you they're great? Because the sisters are really great. (laughs) And there is like a little bit of, you know, dealing with some heavy feelings, but Sarah always tends to keep it pretty light and so bantery. I mean, the banter in her books is just off the charts and they are super steamy. So I feel like this will scratch that itch for you. So again, that's The Rogue Not Taken, the first in the Scandal and Scoundrel series by Sarah McLean. And the next question is from Tara, who says, Since quarantine started, I've been mostly craving mystery thrillers, and lately, after hearing you describe Death by Dumpling, I've been wanting to pick up some cozy mysteries. I love that they're marathonable and that there's usually tons more in the series. I'm going to pick five to ten, read them all, and choose my favorites to continue on. I love the Inspector Gamache series, not really a cozy, Riley Sager thrillers. I recently loved The Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrate, The City We Became by N.K. Jemison, and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. I don't care to read much historical fiction, and I'm always trying to read from a diversity of authors, especially women of color. What are your favorite cozies, and do they need to be read in order? <laughs> LOL. I mean, we just talked about how little we do that. So, mm-hmm. Amanda, what you got? I have Auntie Lee's Delights by Ovidia Yu, which is the first book in the Singaporean mystery series. And this does come, the first one comes with a trigger warning for violent homophobia. So obviously, the Singaporean mystery, this takes place in Singapore. I love this book because Rosie Lee, Auntie Lee, is like Miss Marple in Asia, which is I, not a thing I knew I wanted. But obviously, like if, if someone had said that to me, I'd have been like, yes, hello. And so she is a widow. She married a very wealthy man um, who was older than her. But they're like, you know, their love was real. I'm like making a fist. Their love was so real. And he has recently died. And to keep herself, you know, busy um, and to, like, give herself something to do, she's open Auntie Lee's Delights, which is a restaurant that allows her to experiment with cooking. She's an excellent cook. And she mostly focuses on making, like, classic Singaporean dishes for locals and also tourists. And her son has um, opened a wine import-export business and has started doing wine pairings with her classic dishes at the restaurant. So he calls them, they're just called wine dinners. And he has people come in, mostly tourists to try the wine pairings and there's a woman who helps him run it i don't want to give you her name because it's kind of a bit of a spoiler but there's a woman who helps him run the uh, wine dinners who does not show up to the wine dinner that is happening when the book opens and at the same time auntie lee hears on the news that a body has shown up on the beaches near in her neighborhood and i bet you can guess that they these two things are related And so she, Auntie Lee, has decided that she's going to kind of like try to find out where the woman went who has come to her wine dinners and how it's connected to the body found on the beach and what like her customers have to do with it. 
And in true cozy mystery fashion, there is a whole cast of characters, many of whom are very annoying and obnoxious, including her daughter-in-law, her son, Mark, with the wine, married a woman named uh, Serena, who is the worst. And when I say the worst, I mean like with a capital W, the worst possible person ever. (laughs) And she makes Auntie Lee's life miserable. But the thing that I really love about this character about Rosie Lee is that she is just unflappable. Like she it's Mm. so it's so Miss Marple about like these young people make these big stinks at her and try to manipulate her. Sometimes it's try to manipulate her out of her money or manipulate her into making decisions that they agree with or whatever. And she just like she sees right through everyone and cannot possibly care. And in the same way that Miss Marple like uses her connections in the neighborhood that other people who were like ageist and terrible call busy bodying like to her it's just caring about her neighbors like a human would auntie lee is very much doing the same thing like she feels very deeply that people who come into her restaurant are her family like she is nourishing their bodies she cares about them and so she feels involved in their life she's also like a super genius and very bored so you put all of that together and you get an amateur sleuth so that's auntie lee's delights by ovidia Yu. I am recommending one from my TBR, and I thought of it because of the books that you listed that you like, which do have like some heaviness to them. They're not quite full on cozies, but also they have a sense of humor in a lot of cases. And The Land of Shadows by Rachel Housel Hall is the first in the Detective Eloise Norton series. And my friend who is like a huge mystery thriller fan and who has been really diving into them during quarantine because it's all she feels like she can read was just recommending this series to me. So I'm waiting for my hold to come in from the library. In the meantime, I thought they might work for you because they are, they're pretty dark. Um, Like this one, for example, this first one, it takes place in Los Angeles in specifically an area that is in the process of gentrifying. And a 17-year-old girl is found dead at a construction site like hanging in the closet. It's very upsetting. Um, And the main character, who is the detective, as you might guess, um, (laughs) her partner thinks that it's a suicide, but Lou is not buying it. And the site is owned by like a local self-made millionaire who she actually thinks may have been involved in her own sister's disappearance 30 years previously. So it's one of those things like personal ties to something shows up in a current fresh case. And so she starts investigating the death and it is like definitely heavy but also as everybody keeps telling me the main character is really irreverent and kind of snarky so there is a sense of humor to this and it is by a woman of color about a woman of color and it is like I said I they keep coming up when people are recommending series that are good to dive into especially if you love mystery and thrillers and that's what you're wanting to read in quarantine. So again, that's Land of Shadows by Rachel Housel Hall. All right. Question four is from Netta, who says, I'm going on a trip to Charleston and Savannah. I would love some recommendations for books set in either or both of these places. I've already read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I'm open to any genre and would love anything to get me excited about the upcoming trip. Okay. So like always, like always, like is, has frequently occurred in the past few months, I'm assuming that your trip has been canceled, but we still would like to give you some reading recs so that you can travel there in your imagination. 
and hopefully also in reality in the future. So I picked uh, The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd, which comes with a trigger warning for slavery and everything that goes along with that. And this takes place in Charleston. And it's based on a handful of real people who uh, who exist. A handful of real people who were real. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh my gosh, Amanda. Okay, so there are two main characters, Sarah Grimke, who is a white woman who lives on a plantation in the early 19th century in Charleston. And Handful, which is the nickname for a girl named Hetty, who is a slave on that plantation. And these are based on real people. Sarah Grimke and her sister were um, actual Charleston abolitionists and suffragettes in Charleston in the 19th century. And their lives were very, very difficult. And this is Sue Monk Kid giving them, you know, some breath and on the page. And there is a portion, if you're a person who's like, weirded out by historical fiction that's based on on real people because you can't tell what's real and what, what, what actually happened. There's a portion in the back of the book that tells you, like, this was fiction, this was fact, I made up this part, blah, blah, blah. So when the book opens, Sarah is, I think she's 11, and she has a, uh, a stutter. She can't really, she doesn't speak well in public. Ever since she was a little kid and she witnessed a slave being physically punished, she's, like, not been able to communicate properly. And her parents trying to, like, get her mind right, as I'm using air quotes here, as it would be considered in Charleston in the early 1800s, give her a slave. They give her an enslaved human being. That's who Hetty is. And the two of them are raised together and you are following these two women over the course of their lives. And Sarah, who is, again, like I said, in real life, it was an abolitionist, goes through most of her life trying to free Hetty. She doesn't want to have an enslaved person. And Hetty, of course, does not want to be enslaved, obviously. But I did not realize how difficult it was in South Carolina at the time to free slaves. And so and she's a woman, so she can't, you know, she's got that impediment. Also, she can't represent herself in court or in banks or anything. So like getting any of the paperwork together or money to free Hetty proves to be like more and more difficult the older that she gets. And so both of these characters come up against the historical obstacles that they obviously would have come up against at the time. And it's not a situation where like they're friends because they're Sarah in like a fit of righteous indignation at one point gives Hetty back to her parents because she doesn't want to be a person who owns slaves, but she does not consider like what Hetty's life is going to be be like when she's returned to these terrible people who are not trying to free her at all, you know, and are, are, are not abolitionists in the way that Sarah is. And so she makes these like, you know, very kind of almost, I would say like Karen kind of decisions that are just kind of virtue signaling in order to make a statement when she's not actually considering the humanity of the person who her choices affect. And so it's not like they're friends. It's a very fraught, obviously, and difficult relationship. And Charles, Charleston is very much a character in this book. Like Charleston's oppressive, that like faux gentility, very like gone with the windy kind of like we're imitating English gentry and that's what this whole system is set up to do. Like it's very Mark Twain in that kind of way. If you've read uh, Connecticut and uh, Yankee and King Arthur's Court that like the reason why the South felt that way is because that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to imitate English gentry from that fake gentility oppressive atmosphere is like so heavy through this whole book so it is not easy it's not like light reading obviously but i don't like how do you read about charleston or savannah without taking any of those things into consideration i don't know so that's the invention of wings by sue monk kid i had to get help with this one because i hadn't read anything that seemed like a good fit. Um, And writer Caitlin came through with a recommendation for Defending Angels, which is by Mary Stanton. And it is the first in a cozy supernatural mystery series that takes place in Savannah. So that's fun. And it is about a lawyer, Brianna Winston Beaufort, 
who like suddenly starts seeing ghosts and like finds out there's like a celestial court and she has to like go to the supernatural court to try to help this dead businessman find his murderer and prove his innocence against this, like, charge of greed that's going to depend on, you know, where he goes in the afterlife. And I just thought this sounded so off the wall. I've never... Like, I've read a fair amount of supernatural books, (laughs) and I don't remember ever reading about a supernatural lawyer before. Like, that's that's a new one for me. And I was poking around in the reviews and everybody was talking about how Savannah is a character and how, like, quirky the premise is and how interesting it is. So I think that this one might be, like, obviously you're not gonna, you know, go defend ghosts in Savannah, but <laughs> it might be a fun quarantine read and give you a feel for the city as well. So again, that is Defending Angels, the first in the Beaufort and Company series by Mary Stanton. All right, it is time for our next sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. And now it is time for our next question, which is from Alicia, who says, My 13-year-old daughter and I are starting a mother-daughter book club for the two of us, thanks to our forced pandemic (laughs) togetherness time. We're starting with Pet by Akweka and Mezzi, and I'm looking for recommendations for what we should read next. Some of her favorite books are The Westing Game, The War That Saved My Life, and the Percy Jackson books. I read lots of fantasy, mystery, romance, and some literary fiction. Recent faves include The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, C.L. Polk's Kingston 
cycle books and Gail Carriger's Soulless series. My daughter requests nothing that would embarrass us to talk about with her mom. A little swearing is okay, but no explicit sex on the page, and neither of us like graphic violence. Okay, I'm just going to keep talking. So I picked Not Your Sidekick by C.B. Lee, which is the first in the Sidekick Squad series. And I picked it because, specifically because of the Percy Jackson reference, I was trying to think about, like, what would you both enjoy that has a little bit of that same feel to it? And they are very different. Uh, Not Your Sidekick is much more inspired by superhero stories than by Greek mythology, as a for example, um, which the Percy Jackson books are. But they like it's very contemporary. It's a slightly different world than the one we're in now, but it's very inspired by our world. And I love the balance in this of the like real world, you know, sort of preteen slash early teen problems plus the supernatural adventures. So Jessica, the main character, is part of a family in which, like, everybody, you know, in her family has superpowers, which is not that weird. Her parents are sort of local super celebs. And, you know, they're not, like, you know, national or international superheroes, but they're, like, pretty high up in the local ranks and she has not like she as far as she can tell despite her best efforts has no powers and she is just trying to like beef up her college applications and she finds an internship except it's for the town's supervillain and so she's like I'm gonna stick it to my parents and take this internship because I'm so mad at my family right now because they have powers and I don't and they're the worst and ugh. like just very, like very teenagery feelings And it also means that she gets to work alongside her secret crush, Abby. And then maybe also she's like, this chick is like maybe being a little odd. Like maybe she has some secrets too. And it's just, it is just so fun. And it is such an interesting examination of superhero culture, which is like a weird sentence that I just said. But it really is kind of fascinating. And it delves into all of these issues of perception and what it means to have powers and how they can be co-opted by like government structures or local politics or whatever. It's just really interesting. So I feel like there's tons to talk about. I love Jess and her friends and there's more in the series if you end up liking it. So again, that is Not Your Sidekick by C.B. Lee. I went with an author you are familiar with. I picked the Etiquette and Espionage series by Gail Carriger, which is, uh, no, Etiquette and Espionage is the first book in the series. It's called the Finishing School series. And so this is about a 14-year-old girl named Sophronia. All the names in this book are amazing. <laughs> BTW. Um, a 14-year-old girl named Sophronia who is very annoying <laughs> to her family. She's not annoying uh, to the reader, in my opinion. But she is not very ladylike. She has a hard time focusing on like the things that proper young ladies her age are supposed to be focused on. She's forever getting her dresses dirty, climbing trees and like fixing clocks and putzing with clockwork devices. This is a steampunk series. So there's lots of clockwork stuff. And so her her mother is like, I can't deal with you anymore. You're going to go to finishing school. You're, su- you're, you're a great child to me, girl. You know? <laughs> and so she sends her, she sends Sophronia to Mademoiselle Gerardine's Finishing Academy for Young Ladies of Quality, which is honest 
an airship, which is amazing. I love that so much. And so Sophronia goes to this school and she's like real bummed about it because she does not want to be a young lady of quality. She wants to do what she wants to do. But then she gets there and realizes that this finishing school is not a normal finishing school. It is a finishing school to teach girls how to be assassins and and um, spies. So that's what she learns how to do. And so she learns all the trappings of being an appropriate young lady, like how to you know, carry on a conversation and what forks to use at dinner. I don't know. Like those things that you need to know, not because now she has to be a proper young lady, but so she can pass as one in polite society in order to collect information from powerful people and also maybe murder them if they're bad. Like who knows? Maybe there's going to be a murder. We're going to find out. So she learns how to use all these weapons and all these like cool clockwork tools. She has a little clockwork dog who's adorable. And then in her, uh, as is to be expected, I think, on a boat full of girls being taught how to be a spy, she does not, like, follow the rules very well. She does not stay in her room when she's supposed to. She explores the ship a lot and gets embroiled in this, like, political kind of espionage situation that's happening on the ship. There are werewolves um, who wear top hats. Everything is great. It's just a steampunk comedy of manners with a really great feminist message that I think would be a wonderful thing to read with like a younger daughter, really of any age. I was, But she's 13, so she'll relate a lot, I think, to what Sophronia is going through of like the expectations that we put on how girls are supposed to behave and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's Etiquette and Espionage by Gail Carriger. Okay, question six is from Caitlin, who says, I've gotten so many good quirky books with unusual characters or premises, like a 1980s high school field hockey team who dabbles in witchcraft, or characters like a wyvern whose mother was a wyvern and father was a library, or a washed-up rock band who has to compete in a universe-wide battle of the bands to prove that humans are sentient and save the planet. I enjoy most genres, so not limited to fantasy, but more of that. Okay, Jen, what you got? Have you met Gideon the Ninth? Because... <laughs> <laughs> I was looking through my reading spreadsheet for like, what are the quirkiest books I've read in the last year? And I was like, well, it's got to be hands down Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. I like this book has so much going on. It takes place in space. It's a space opera, but with necromancers and like swords, like everybody's got a sword. There's very few high tech things in this book. And the main character, Gideon, is an orphan who's grown up on this like exceedingly dreary, terrible planet where her arch nemesis, who's the daughter of like the local muckety mucks, has made her life absolutely hell. I mean, they've made each other's life hell, but Harrow has the power. So Gideon's life is worse. And she just wants to go. She wants to enlist. She wants to fight in the Empire's wars. She wants to get the heck off of this planet. And she has this whole plot and is thwarted, of course. And Harrow is like, listen, the emperor is having a competition of some kind to like be his right hand people. And I need a swordswoman. So you're going to come with me. And that's how you're going to get off this planet. And once I win this competition, you can go do whatever you want. And Gideon like basically doesn't have a choice. So she says, OK. So then the book turns into this like locked planet murder mystery because people are killing off these competitors in ways that like are not kosher within the rules of this competition and pretty grisly, in fact. And Gideon is just trying to survive. Like, she is not a detective. She does not know what the heck is going on. Her solution with everything is to, like, hit it with her sword or her fists. And she's got this very complicated relationship with Harrow. And everything is quirky and hilarious and weird and dark and gothy. Yes, gothy. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. And I think if you love quirk, you're going to love this series. I will also say that I have read... The second book, Harrow the Ninth, which doesn't come out until the fall, it is fantastic. 
So everybody, like, pre-order that business. So again, that is Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Okay, I picked The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix, which comes with trigger warnings for racism and harm to children. And this was pitched to me and the world. It's like the blurb on the book, so not to me because I'm special. As fried green tomatoes meets steel magnolias meets Dracula. So (laughs) this is the only book I'm going to read for the rest of my life because all of those things are very relevant to my interests. Also, if you read the intro to the book, uh, Grady Hendrix talks about how this is an homage to his mom, which I... Love. I just love it. So this is, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's about a neighborhood book club of very proper Southern white ladies in the in the 80s or early 90s. So like the fashion discussions and the decor discussions in this book are so great. And they have a book club that is supposed to be like they're telling their husbands that their book club is a Bible study. But in reality, they read like really trashy true crime thrillers. And Patricia Campbell is the main character. And she has married a doctor. She was a nurse and she gave up her career to marry this doctor and become a mom. She's got two kids. And her neighbor is an uh, an elderly woman whose nephew comes into town and moves in with the aunt. And then like weird things start happening in the neighborhood animals you know showing up looking all kinds of weird children start missing start going missing specifically in the neighborhood's black community which is not in the white community like this is a segregated de facto segregated community the south in the 80s and patricia campbell becomes more and more convinced that like this dude has something to do with it why won't he come outside during the daytime why does he not drive like why is he looking sick all the time except the day after one of these kids goes missing you know like it's not hard to put these puzzle pieces together and so she convinces her book club that like something is super weird about this guy and they start collecting evidence and they go to their husbands one of whom is like a a detective and are like you know this is weird this guy is very suspect and questionable like we need to do something about this and their husbands completely shut them down because you've been reading too many crime books ladies and you're hysterical and we just need you to calm down turns out they're like all in business with the guy and so it's such a fascinating creepy book i mean it is fried green tomatoes meets dracula right like this is southern women fighting vampires like (laughs) housewives fighting vampires but you add in all of this social context to the situation like these are housewives so they are not to be believed they're just housewives right just housewives the main victims of the violence in the book are black children and grady hendrix does not let these white ladies off the hook for that fact and the ways that they have to go about defending their community and their children and all the children in this black community because you know there's no such thing as other people's children despite what their neighbors and their husbands and the police tell them it's just so interesting and like a really great modern take on a vampire novel so that's the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires by grady hendrix excellent all right so our last question is from katie who says Recently, I've become interested in houseplants. Side commentary. (laughs) I love how many pictures of plants are in my Instagram feed these days. I just, I like, also, also am a fan of houseplants. Okay, I will keep reading the question now. I've recently become interested in houseplants, and I've absolutely loved reading How to Houseplant by Heather Rodino. I loved the author's practical tips on finding the right light for your plants, watering different kinds of soil, and what plant would be best for your space. I'm interested in learning more about plants, both indoor and outdoor, slash gardening in general. I'd love to read something else that is along the same lines as how to houseplant, perhaps a step up from beginner, but not quite expert. I'd love to hear any recommendations you might have. 
I am going to recommend to you Happy Cactus <laughs> by John Pilbeam. And here's why. I have been a houseplant fan for a while now. I have definitely acquired more plants over the past two months than I had in like the previous year, but that's where we're at. And the one thing that I cannot keep alive, which are supposed to be so easy, are succulents. I kill mm-hmm. every succulent that comes anywhere near me. It's so frustrating because I love them so much. I just, I don't know why I'm so bad with them. And so I happened to find this book at like scrolling through catalogs online and was so excited. And it is, as you might guess from the title, in-depth care tips specifically for cactus and succulent varieties. And like, again, it seems easy. I am here to tell you it is not always easy. And I really love how this book breaks down like all of these different, like there, it talks about 50 varieties, first of all, that's pretty comprehensive. And it does get into like, okay, where do you put it? When do you water it? Do you need to feed it? Like, do you need to, like, what happens when it grows these weird pups? Or like, what happens when it flowers? Or what happens if it turns a weird color? Like all of these things. It's very much an in-depth guide to exactly what it says, cactus and succulents. And I just loved how matter-of-fact and straightforward and, like, good the pictures are. It's a beautifully designed book. It's just so, like, here's your plant. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's maybe going wrong. Like, go forth and enjoy. So, it's very specific, but again, I love succulents. Cannot keep them alive. I found it very useful. So that is Happy Cactus by John Pilbeam. I also want to give a quick shout out to Gardener's World by Monty Don, which is a show that you can watch on YouTube. Monty Don is like the British gardening dude. Plant daddy. I mean, yes, plant daddy. Oh my God. Oh, I can't know. Amanda, why did you put those words in my head? Can I not see? Can I not see? Oh, Lord. Sorry, I just ruined Monty Don for Jen. Never going to recover from that. Okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway, Monty Don is great. I fell very hard for the... Big Dreams Small Spaces series that he is the host of where he helps people figure out what to do with their tiny backyards. Anyway, the YouTube episodes are great and they he like walks you through like, okay, like, do you need to like deadhead things? Do you need to divide things? Do you need to plant bulbs now or later? What do you need to do? Like, that's very much what he's there for. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's no, don't be sorry, Amanda. I mean, be a little sorry. Be a I little mean, just sorry. a little bit. Sorry, a little bit, a little bit sorry. Okay, so I picked Wild at Home, How to Style and Care for Beautiful Plants by Hilton Carter, who I discovered on Instagram, and he is 100% worth the follow. Hilton Carter is a professional plant stylist, which is a job I didn't know I wanted, but now I absolutely want it. And that's Amanda 2.0 is going to be a plant stylist. And this is a, um, a like a 2.0 kind of plant care book. So it's not for beginner. I don't think it's an expert book either. But it's definitely to help you like step up your plant game. It's both plant styling, like how to arrange what plants next to which plants for the for like the best aesthetic. And you do take a tour of Hilton Carter's New York apartment, which is amazing. He's got a giant fiddle leaf named Frank, who I'm like obsessed with. And it is also care. Uh, tips that are a little bit more advanced. So not just like when to water, what kind of light to give, but also how like how to propagate some of your plants, what size pots and what kind of pots and like what material of pot is best. 
and how to, like I said, group certain plants together, not just for aesthetic purposes, but also because they have, um, what's the word, like kind of symbiotic relationships or Mm. symbiotic care needs or whatever. So it is a little bit more complex than like, you know, here's a peace lily, (laughs) water it once a week, whatever. Uh, And the plants that he talks about are upping kind of your your plant game a little bit. So like fiddle leaves, he does talk about a lot. Those are notoriously difficult to care for. He's also talking about like monsteras and air plants and lots of things that you will pretty easily be able to find at a local plant shop, but that might have been a little bit more intimidating when you were first starting out. So that's Wild at Home by Hilton Carter. And that is our show. Yeah. Thank you for going on today's journey with us. (laughs) What a journey it was. Uh, If you are inclined to leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, we super appreciate it. It helps other folks to find the show. Thank you to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. And you can find us on social media talking about plants and Black Lives Matter and all kinds of Mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. 